Well, good morning, Gitwell. How are you today? It is exciting to be here as we continue in our series uh, on the good life. And uh, I tell you, if you see bags under my eyes, there's a reason for that because I just got back off of beach trip with our youth, but it was so well worth it. And I see so many of them sitting out here today and uh, God just really came and just showed up and showed out there. And if you guys could witness our youth worshiping, I tell you, it's really, a, it's really a sight to see. And I'm just grateful for them and for all of our leaders this week as we, we had our beach trip. Uh, if you have your uh, back of your bulletin, yes, there's no outline, so get a pen out. There's going to be a lot of scripture today, and you'll need to write some of it down and go back and reference it later. But uh, we have a lot to cover. I want to remind you a little bit what I said from week four of uh, of teaching. Uh, this, we are in this uh, series and it's about the Beatitudes. It is from Matthew who is the Jewish uh, tax collector turned disciple. And uh, remember, he's, Jesus comes to and sees the crowds. He sits on the mountain. He starts speaking. And then he's launching into these statements that for a Jewish audience are very shocking. It turns their world upside down. Now, over the past five weeks, we uh, have seen that Jesus says, blessed are you if you are poor in spirit, when you mourn are meek, humble, hunger and thirst for righteousness. And last week, Hunter gave us the message on showing mercy. And we've learned this word, marikos in Greek, literally means to be happy or to be fortunate. And so let's start today as we look at verse uh, 6 in Matthew chapter 5, and it is this. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Another way of saying this, if we put that word happy in there, is happy are those with a pure heart, for they will see God. Now, two weeks ago, when I taught on hungering and thirsting for righteousness, I got a couple of questions from some of you, and I, I love doing that because that means you were actually listening. But uh, if the, your question was this. You said, if blessed means happy, is happiness what all of these beatitudes are about? Another ask, is happiness the goal here? Is that what we should be looking for? And I thought, you know, those are really good questions. Is the purpose of these verses that Jesus is giving us, is happiness the goal? And I think we really need to step back just a minute and address this since we've gone so far down into, these, into this passage and these Beatitudes. You know, given our Western American culture, happiness is a high priority for us in the United States. Last Sunday, we celebrated our 4th of July, or our Independence Day, and the Declaration of Independence, which was the document which launched that, says this in the beginning of the second paragraph. And I think it's important to look at this because it helps us even understand who we are in our culture. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. 
See, when Thomas Jefferson penned that phrase 246 years ago, I think he really thought that happiness was a right that God is giving us to seek out. But I want to tell you, I want us to really examine this because I did a little bit of research the last couple of weeks and I found an article written in 2016 by a woman named Ruth Whitman. She's an author, a journalist, she's a documentary filmmaker from London, now living in the United States because her husband took a job over here. And she titled this article, America is Obsessed with Happiness and It's Making Us Miserable. And I wanted to talk a little bit about that because I want you to hear what she says. Now think about this. She is British. Their culture doesn't view happiness like us Americans do. And she says a few months that she moved into America, she was desperate for adult conversation. She was going up to everybody she could, moms pushing swings in the playground, the dry cleaner, the man in front of her at the line of the grocery store, any random contact that she could find to have adult conversation. And she said in her conversation, oddly enough, the topic came up every time and that topic was happiness. The conversation, she said, fell into two categories. And I found this amazingly interesting. The agonizing kind and the evangelical kind. As a compulsive overthinker, she says, the agonizing ones felt more familiar to her. These are conversations, she says, all about questions. Am I with the right person? Am I following my passions? Am I doing what I love? What is my purpose in life? Am I as happy as I should be? And as a Brit raised in a whole different culture of basically cynicism, she says the evangelical style conversations were newer territory to her. She says, in those conversations, these people claim to have found the answers. They are enthused about their chosen paths of bliss. They're convinced, at least temporarily, that they have found that the definite thing that will pin down happily ever after in their life. But she says, but really, have they? You see, it seems in America that happiness has become the overachiever's ultimate trophy. It's a modern trump card that outranks professional achievement, social success, family, friendship, and even love. To an outsider looking in at us, it can sometimes feel that this whole nation, this entire population is a nationwide standardized happiness exam that we take and everyone is cramming the night before to get a good grade. But after a little more research, I found this study by some psychologists at the University of California in Berkeley, and in this study, participants were given a questionnaire to rate how highly they valued happiness as a goal in their life. Surprisingly, and this really is, the higher, respond higher the respondents rated happiness as a personal ambition the less happy they actually were in their lives and more likely they were to experience generally dissatisfaction and even depression. 
In a second study, they actually gave one group of people an article to read about the importance of happiness, and they showed what they called a happy film. I don't know what that is. But the second group of participants were just shown the happy film without reading the article, and they found out that the ones that had read the happiness article first and watched the film concluded that they were less happy than the ones that just watched the film. So is this great American search for happiness working? And the answer, I think, is really no. Somehow this great nation of ours that pursues happiness so prominently, even from the foundation, has been shown by studies and international comparison to be one of the least happiest places in the world. Why is this? I think here's the reason, because I think happiness as a goal and seeking happiness in and of itself is not biblical. So the answer, to answer the questions I got about these Beatitudes, I would say no, happiness is not the goal. But it is the byproduct, and it is the byproduct of something so great that it produces happiness. See, Jesus says here, happy are the pure in heart. But we got a problem, pure heart. We fallen, sinful human beings do not have a pure heart. But if we did, Jesus tells us then we could see God. We also have another problem here because we don't get to see God himself because he's invisible to us. In 1 Timothy 6, 16, Paul talking about God says, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see. He's talking about God himself. The Lord is invisible. But here's another issue too. He's also holy, and that means he's separated from us. He's majestic. It means he's separated from sin. He's pure. And as the writer of Hebrews puts it in chapter 12, verse 14, he says, we are to strive for peace and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. And we're not holy like him. So no human being has been holy since the fall, since Adam and Eve. And there's our problem. Yet Jesus sends this message and says it's going to take a pure heart for us to see him. So how do we get this pure heart? The world tells us today that in searching for happiness, just follow your heart. Just follow your heart. You'll find your life's desires. It says you'll find your ultimate happiness. But according to scripture, this is opposite of what we should be saying Remember, when we're seeking meaning to Scripture, the best place to search is other Scripture. So let's take a look back in the Old Testament at Jeremiah 17.9. Look at this. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? See, most of the time, I want us to get this, when the Bible is talking about the heart, 
It's not talking about the physical organ in our chest that's pumping blood through our system. It's speaking of your inner self, your spirit, your soul, your mind. In Jeremiah, in that next verse, 17.10, God says, I, the Lord, search the heart. I test the mind. Heart and mind here are parallels. They're synonyms. So when Jesus is talking about heart here, he means your inner self as opposed to our physical body. We're just not talking about that cardiac muscle. And we're not just talking about our feelings as opposed, opposed to our thinking. See, when scripture is talking about heart, it's referring to our inner personality, who we are deep down, and it includes our minds, our hearts, and our wills. And all of our Bibles in this verse right here assume one thing, that our hearts are not pure. So following your heart in our condition is going to lead us astray. But see, if Jesus is calling us to purity of heart, we've got to understand what this means. And we've got to understand what needs to change in our lives to get there. The word pure here is the Greek katharos, which means clean. This is a word that's rich in Old Testament background because in the Old Testament law, God commanded the priest of the temple and the people of God that they were not to be contaminated with animals and other things that had been devoted to other gods. If the people of Israel came in contact with anything unclean, they had to go through a cleansing ritual before they could come back for worship. So they had rituals, rituals for washing themselves or other things to make themselves suitable to come before God. Now we do know that there's a Levitical law that God did require them to carry out some of these rituals, rituals but unfortunately many of the people took things way too far. So by the time Jesus comes along in the New Testament period, the religious leaders called the Pharisees were totally consumed with the issue of keeping themselves outwardly clean. They would wash every cup, every basin, wash their hands ceremonially, and go through all kinds of ceremonial washings to keep clean. If you want the best reference to, to what the Pharisees were talking about, I really think you should go look in the Gospel of Mark chapter 7, verses 1 through 7. And in here, this is the story when the Pharisees are watching the disciples eat. And the disciples did not wash their hands before they ate. And so the, disciple, the Pharisees go to Jesus and, and complain about this. They're not doing what we said they're supposed to do. You're supposed to wash your hands before you eat. Doesn't happen much with our youth either today, does it? I'm just playing, just playing. Jesus answers, answers these Pharisees. He says this, Rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites? As it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far away from me. But in vain they do worship me, teaching as doctrines the precepts of men. What, the, what Jesus is saying here is, you Pharisees, you've added all these traditions, these man-made rules here. You don't even get the inner message of this. 
You see what he's saying? He's reprimanding them for being so ritualistic, for being clean on the outside. He says, you're so concerned about your traditions of outward cleansing. But he says, but your hearts, your inward thoughts, your motions, your love is so far away from me, I don't even recognize you. He's saying it's not the outward cleansing that they should be concerned about, but the cleanliness of the heart. See, the Pharisees must have even forgotten their own Old Testament text. Let's look at 1 Samuel 16, 7. For the Lord sees, not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. You see... It is in contrast to that religious mindset that Jesus says here in Matthew 5, 8, blessed are the pure in heart. He's saying, I don't want you to be concerned with your looks on the outward side of your body like the Pharisees. I want you to be concerned about your inward purity of your heart. And this wasn't new to Jewish culture. God has always looked at the human heart. Jeremiah 17.10, he says, I, the Lord, search the heart. I test the mind. He is saying, I care about your heart. I care about your mind, not just your body and your outward appearance. So in this passage in Matthew 5, in this beatitude, he is saying he wants his disciples' character to be like Jesus. Jesus says, my disciples are not to be people who are focused on merely externals or appearance or what we look like on our physical bodies. He's saying my disciples should also be concerned with their hearts. It is the heart. It is your heart that matters to God. And the heart, if we really are digging deep here, your heart, my heart, all of our hearts, it is the secrecy of our thoughts and feelings when nobody knows what we really are thinking and feeling but God himself. And what you are at the invisible root inside matters as much to God as what the branches look like on the outside. Matthew points this out over and over and over. And in chapter 12, in verse 33, he quotes Jesus talking about the tree and the fruit it produces. He says that you either make the tree good and have good fruit or it's bad and there's bad fruit. Look at verse 34. It says, you brood of vipers... How can you speak good when you're evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. See, Matthew wants to point out how crucial this is. It is all about the state of our hearts and our inner being. Look further down in Matthew chapter 15 verses 18 and 19. But what comes out of the mouth proceeds where? From the heart. And this defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. It's quite a list. Scripture bears witness that this is crucial to Jesus. What we are in the deep 
recesses of our lives is what he cares most about and is what he's looking at. Church, Jesus did not come into this world simply because we have bad habits that need to be fixed. He came into this world because we have such dirty hearts that have to be purified. You hear the difference? He didn't come in this world so that we have bad habits that need to be broken of or fixed. He came into this world so that our dirty hearts will be purified. So we have to ask this, church, do you want to see God? Do you want a fellowship with him? If you do, you've got to have a pure heart. What does it mean? It means that your heart's got to be totally clean in order for you to see God in heaven. Go to the Psalms, Psalms 24, verse 3 and 4. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord and who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands. A pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. Unfortunately, churches are filled with people that think they're going to get to heaven by their good deeds and if their good deeds outweigh their bad. And that's not what scripture teaches us. You have to have a perfect righteousness to see God. In this chapter later in verse 48, Jesus says, Therefore you must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Why? God is a holy God. He's perfect. Heaven is a perfect place. The new heaven, the new earth will be perfect. And if you and I are going to be there, we've got to be perfect as well. We must be totally clean, pure in heart, because that's what Scripture teaches. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. It takes total purity of heart to see God and live in his presence for eternity. So who among us here can say that? Proverbs 29 answers this very question. Who can say, I have cleansed my heart, I am pure from my sin, the answer is, on our own, none of us. Not one. Romans 3.23, we have all sinned. We've fallen short of the glory of God. God searches our hearts. He tests our minds. Jeremiah says he knows what's in our hearts, what's in our minds. And you and I, if we're honest with ourselves, we know our hearts are not clean. And if pure heart is that qualification, there's no hope for us. But there is. See, that is why the only hope that any of us here or listening online today has is for first to us to admit our sins and cast ourselves on God's mercy in Jesus Christ. God knows our hearts, we sin daily, and we can never reach heaven on our own. That's why he came to earth in the first place as the person of Jesus Christ to die on the cross for the forgiveness of our sins so that if we put our faith in him, he will forgive our sins and purify our hearts so that we will see God. 1 John 1.7 says, when we trust him, that the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. And when he cleanses us from sin, we are totally and perfectly clean. 
It's just like Isaiah 1.18 says, Though your sins are red as scarlet, they shall be white as snow. James, the brother of Jesus, says this, Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify what? Your hearts, you double-minded. See, we have the, the way. We have a Savior. And when you put your faith and trust in Jesus, he will draw near to you. He will cleanse your hands. He will give you a pure heart, but only through him. See, if we look back at these verses, church, that we call the Beatitudes, we need to, we've gone far enough now that we can notice the qualities of these Beatitudes are all inward qualities. It's not, blessed are the one who reads so much of their Bible. It's not, blessed is the one who gives so much money, or blessed is the one who goes to church so many times a week. Those are all outward actions that may or may not involve the heart. But instead, Jesus says the qualities he's looking for in his disciples and in us are inward qualities. The poor in spirit, verse 3, that's a heart that's dependent on him, that comes to him broken. Mourning, that inward quality. You are so broken that you weep. Meekness, humility. We come in humble humility to place our faith and our trust in him. Hunger for thirst and righteousness. We talked about that two weeks ago. Merciful, as Hunter talked about last week, to where we see and feel compassion deep within. All of these are things Jesus is saying here, that is the goal. Once we hit that goal, the happiness follows. It's the byproduct because it takes the heart quality to get there. Jesus is not looking for us to read so much or give so much or do so much because some of those things can be done legalistically. Instead, what he wants us to do is to develop that kind of heart. It matters to Jesus. Our hearts matter to Jesus. And we're reminded this in Scripture over and over. Matthew quotes Jesus quoting Deuteronomy 6. That's a mouthful, isn't it? Let's look at this. Matthew twenty-two thirty-seven. He said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. How many times do we just repeat that verse and we don't think about what that means? But church, we can't love him with an unclean heart. We can't be like Pharisees. Our life cannot look outwardly good and be a cesspool on the inside. And it doesn't matter if you are one of the most respected model citizens in DeSoto County or in your region when your heart and your mind are in the gutter. Our hearts are what God is looking at. It's not what we do, but it's what is in our heart. It's not just I'm having my quiet time with God. 
but do I love God with all my heart? It's not just, am I reading my Bible? But when I read my Bible, do I delight in his word and in his law from my heart? It's not just, am I making my visits like I'm supposed to be making and checking off a list? But do I actually love people in my heart? It's not just, am I giving? But I am so thankful for what God has done in my life and has given me that I want to show away an appreciation of him that I'm going to give it back. It's not just do I have a ticket to heaven or the new heaven or the new earth. But do I earnestly long to be in the presence of Jesus, my Savior? Is he the greatest treasure in my heart? Am I hungering and thirsting for this righteousness? This is what we're trying to get here. So how do we obtain this pure heart so that we see God and then experience true happiness? We've got to come to the foot of the cross. We've got to come to the feet of Jesus. We come confessing our brokenness, our sinful nature. We come asking for forgiveness. We come asking him to create in us a clean heart and renew our spirit. He is the answer. He is the only way. Paul addressed this with the Jerusalem council because post-Jesus, after the ascension, the Jews are coming to know Jesus, but now so are the Gentiles and they don't know what to do with each other or how to interact with each other. And Paul said, addressed this with him. The, he says, uh, told that the Gentiles will hear the word of the gospel and believe. Look at Acts 15, 8 and 9. And God, what? Who knows the heart, bore witness to them, the Gentiles, by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us, to the Jews. And he made no distinction between us and them. We're one family having cleansed their hearts by faith. These words of Jesus ought to bring some of us here to our knees today. Because if so many of us were truthful, we could admit we've just been going through the motions. We've just been doing the right things that we think are right. But the truth is, we're a lot more like the Pharisees sometimes than we are comfortable admitting. Some of us here today may look at an outward appearance and think, oh, we have it all together, but we know we don't. Some of us are battling, battling all kinds of things. Lustful thoughts, envious thoughts, anger, bitterness, unforgiveness, jealousy, and God cares more about these than the more than the way you look. Bring this stuff to him and lay it at his feet for forgiveness. Ask him for his help to change you. We can't do this on our own, but he can. And he will. We've got to ask Jesus to do this, what we cannot do for ourselves. 
through God's grace and his grace alone, we can have a pure heart and we can see God now and forever. Jesus said, this, this is the blessed life. This produces this happy life that we are so desperately searching for. Prayer rails will be open as the prayer, as our praise team comes up. Come give it to him. We all have stuff. Come and ask God to do whatever he needs to do in your life, in my life, in our lives to purify us. Let's pray. Father God, we just come before you now confessing our brokenness, confessing our sinful nature, confessing those thoughts, deeds, and anything that we've done. We beg of you as we lay them at your feet, Jesus, to take these burdens, forgive us of our sins, create in us that clean heart, that pure heart, so that we can see you, so we can be with you, not only in heaven, but in that new heaven and new earth forever. Do your work in the hearts of everyone here as you will. We ask these things in your name, Jesus, and through the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.